Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Thank you guys for joining us today on the I Believe podcast. Um, I am joined today by guest Megan McClay, who is an ocular melanoma patient who, if you have followed social media or BBC at all, you saw her article dropped. I think it was just this last month. Um, and it was an incredibly written article just detailing her journey with uh, facing a stage four diagnosis with uveal melanoma. And she told her story beautifully, and I really just wanted to give her the opportunity to capture capture her story on the podcast as well. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. So can you just tell us, you know, tell us briefly, where are you from? And uh, let's maybe start at the beginning of your diagnosis journey. Yeah, of course. So I'm from England, if you can't tell by the accent already. Um, And I was originally diagnosed with stage one in February 2020. So I was 26 years old. Um, The symptoms started initially with a a small flashing light in the corner of my left eye. Never had a migraine before, so I assumed maybe that's what this is. And I ignored it for about a week, but even when my eyes were closed, I could still see it. Um, I ended up calling an optometrist and as soon as I mentioned flashing light, they said go to A&E. And then that started the the journey of diagnosis, which was... um, Originally, they they couldn't tell whether it was uh, cancer or benign because it had characteristics of both. So they decided to treat it initially with uh, a few rounds of photodynamic therapy. Um, It would help me preserve my vision. And if it did respond to that, we knew immediately it was ocular melanoma, which it did. It responded to that very well uh, and it was confirmed. So... Continued that for a few months until it it stopped working and then went on to stereotactic uh, radiotherapy, which was very successful, shrunk the tumour significantly and uh, surprisingly is still tiny now. I mean, when I look at scans, it's like scar tissue. You can barely even see it. Uh, And that continued on and on until around February 2022 when it was confirmed that I had stage four and it then spread to the liver. Uh, And that's where we are now. (laughs) I think your mic, your mic is gone. (laughs) You're fine. Um, I know the initial diagnosis and just when you get, uh, when you get that kind of confirmed that there's recurrence of some kind, whether it's recurrence in the eye or recurrence for it spreading elsewhere, like the liver, um, can you just kind of maybe draw some parallels? Did you notice anything that felt similar? Um, and was there, you know, aspects of maybe having a stage four diagnosis that felt worse? And how did you navigate those just as an individual? It felt kind of similar to me uh, as to when I first was diagnosed with stage one and then understood what the diagnosis was. Because there was a while 
when I was diagnosed with stage one that I didn't really understand the threat of it because it's so mm. small. I'd never even heard of eye cancer. Um, and I believed that it was something we could just treat and move on with at the time. And when I started understanding and doing my own research, it was like a, um, it was something I really struggled to comprehend. It was a complete blow at that time. And I was just starting to come to terms with that living in uncertainty when it was confirmed mm. it was stage four, which was then very similar right back uh, into that mindset of not knowing what is going to happen from here on. So yeah, it was kind of similar in a way. So as you've navigated this uncertainty, um, especially around a stage four diagnosis, uh, what have been some of the things that, that you've struggled with in the, the realm of uncertainty? Um, it's something I, I continue to struggle with now. I, I try to live in the present more and more. I try not to think about the past or the future too much if I can help it. Um, but it's the uncertainty of, you know, whether treatments are going to work. We look at the statistics, but we see people defying them all the time. And then on the contrary, we see people who are passing way before the stats tell us. So I, I just don't know what is next for me. I mean, my doctor initially gave me less than two years. I'm at about a year and a half now. So I'm hoping <laughs> to defy those odds, but it's just uncertainty in every aspect. I, I have no idea what awaits me uh, in terms of life expectancy or anything. So do you mind telling uh, our audience, how old were you when you were first diagnosed? Um, I was 26 when I was first diagnosed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2000... 2020. 2020. Okay. So actually we were diagnosed the same year. That's crazy. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I just was a couple years older than you, but not by much. Oh, wow. I didn't not realize that. Much. So yeah, I understand. I understand a lot of, a lot of kind of the feelings because I felt a lot of those myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so as you've gone through, especially your stage four diagnosis, and you've been navigating this past year and a half of having various different treatments, um, do you want to go ahead and maybe just share briefly what are some of the treatments and things that you've had to endure or that you have chosen to follow through with? Yeah, of course. So I had initially, uh, it was three rounds of photodynamic therapy, which uh, I agreed to have because it, it is a bit specialized. There's not many hospitals in the UK that do it. Um, and it was going to be able to preserve my vision. And my tumor is right near the optic nerve. So I thought if I can preserve my vision, let's give it a shot. Um, so we tried that and that worked for a while. As soon as it stopped, we went on to stereotactic radiotherapy, which was a lot more intense of a treatment. It was just a one-time treatment. And although it worked, I'm now completely blind in my left eye. So there's you know good and bad bits kind of it of a give and take there yeah exactly um and then a few avastin injections as soon as my vision started to deteriorate we tried to preserve as much of it as we could but it was unsuccessful again worth a try yeah for sure and i mean i know that's kind of the mindset i had to approach a lot of a lot of everything to do with this diagnosis with is just that okay it's worth a try because you know i'm this old and i may as well just try it like what's it gonna hurt mm -hmm. um so as you proceeded with liver directed treatments uh, i'm gonna assume that you've had some kinds of liver directed treatments uh what's been available to you in the uk and maybe maybe just share uh, some of the barriers you've faced yeah of course so 
at the moment I'm on to Bentefast, but I think you know it is a Kim track over there. Mm -hmm. So I have that every week. Um, and that has been keeping me stable now for a good few months. Um, but initially, when I started it, uh, my tumors were still increasing in size and mass gradually, but they were. And now in the liver, I have about 50 plus tumors all scattered around my liver. So it started to become very scary because every MRI was showing a bigger increase and a bigger increase. So my family and I started looking at what other options were available to us. And um, they're very limited. <laughs> there aren't many unless you're willing to risk a trial, which, you know, works very well for some people, but doesn't for others. And we came across uh, chemosaturation, DELCAF, which unfortunately is not funded by the NHS. It's been approved by NICE, but not funded by the NHS. So we started fundraising for that. And uh, that was incredibly daunting because here it's a, a round of DELCAF is around 40,000 pounds. You could need up to six, it depends on how you respond to the first few. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, £40,000 just to start with the first treatment is, is just crazy. But luckily, we were we were successful in that, uh, mainly because a radio station picked up my, uh, my fundraising, LBC, and the audience there just massively came together and helped me so much. But this is something I, I really kind of really upsets me is because it's just that luck that got me this fundraising and I see people mm -hmm. now who are who are still fundraising for more time and more life which is incredibly frustrating to see because we see very very yeah. good outcomes of this treatment and people are just being denied it for finance which is very upsetting but um that's where I am at the moment where I started fundraising for for Delcaf and then as I was approaching uh, my fundraising ending I started to get stable results from my Tibentafusp. And for the last three MRIs, I've had stability, well, technically stability. They've increased a, a tiny bit, but not enough for it to warrant uh, any issue. So at the moment, I'm just staying on this for as long as it works. And as soon as it stops working, I'll be jumping straight over to Delcaf and then hoping for the best there. Well, that's absolutely incredible that you were able to... Um have such you know community support from that radio station i think i saw that i think i saw when your fundraiser first went live and just some of the results of of it getting picked up by the news station but like you said not every patient has that chance mm -hmm. not every patient um, especially in ocular melanoma like we're such a rare cancer and i mean most of the time if there's any level of personal fundraising happening to try to afford treatment it isn't it isn't picked up by a news station it's shared you know between communities across social media um, and, and like you said, the cost is daunting. And so for, for there to be a lack of approval for that, you know, in any area of the world for treatment to be accessible to a patient and not financially inaccessible, um, is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I appreciate the, I guess the candidness that you talk about that with, um, or talk about, yeah, talk about that. Um, because it's just, it is really, it, it's an ongoing problem, whether it's that there's little access to a spot in a trial, if you choose to go down the route of doing a trial or that the treatments you do have access to, you're being denied because some level of health insurance or the government isn't quite, you know, up to speed 
Uh, and that can feel that can feel really, really incredibly frustrating to just be a patient where like the odds are already stacked against you enough, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like not, not like you need anything else. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly it. And and it's so unfair because, you know, I, I've seen people in the past having to sell their homes. I've, I'm now seeing another couple having to consider selling their homes. And it's just ridiculous that people are having to do this when the treatment is there. It, it's there. Yeah. NICE have approved it. There's been good results from it. It's just technicalities and lack of progression that's preventing mm. these amazing people having life prolonging treatment. It's incredibly frustrating, but yeah, we can well, just I think it, like you. I mean, we talked about this before, like, you know, these uncomfortable topics, these, these uncomfortable areas of having this diagnosis, especially in other areas of the world. Um, but it, I mean, it, it crosses over into the United States. Like this is, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. We need to shed light on this. And so, you know, if there are other patients struggling with this, I hope you guys will, you know, voice that because I think the more voices we hear from, um, across the world, across, you know, various different institutions, the better chance we have of being heard. Um, so thank you for taking the time today, Megan, to not only talk about your story, but also just to bring bring some light to some of the issues that are faced by you and other patients, especially where you live. Oh, no problem. No problem. It's, it's very important to me. So I'm always happy to, yeah. to voice it when I get the chance. So let's just chat a little bit about your support system. Um, from what I can glean, you have a pretty solid support system, but um, who or what have been some of your greatest supports through your diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my main support has been my partner. Uh, who's been with me through every step of this and has just been incredible throughout all of it, um, as has my mum. My mum has been my absolute rock throughout all of this as well. And uh, friends, my aunties, Emma and Marie, I've, I've got some really, really good, solid support behind me. And I don't know how I would have been able to do it if I didn't. So I, I think it's very important to, if you have those people around you that kind of get it, as much as they can because they're not in your shoes they won't you know you have to have realistic expectations but if they're willing to stand by you hold them close because not everybody will be I'm sure you know we've all seen that you do lose friends and people distance themselves when you become really poorly so I'm very lucky I've got a very strong support system I think that's such a powerful thing to have, to have uh, that support system. And like you said, you know, if you have that support as a patient, it can make all the difference in the world in just navigating this and coping with the day-to-day. And if you don't, that doesn't mean that there's no way to build that support. Um, we've talked about this in the Ion Mental Health seminar that, you know, it's, it's really very possible to build new friendships, to build lasting uh, relationships with new people, be it people who are diagnosed or just fellow cancer survivors kind of the unexpected people who come into your life and stick around, um, keep those people close. Like that's such an important thing. Absolutely. Um, what do you, um, what do you feel like have been some of the, I, I like, I know it's, it's kind of one of those tricky things to say, but like, what are, what are some of the gifts that have come? Like the good things, the, the things that, you know, maybe you wish they could have come a different way, but like that they have made a big difference in how you navigate life now. Um, just kind of as a result of where you are in your diagnosis? Well, like you were just saying, you you can meet new people that can be incredible. If you don't already have that support system there, you can find it. And, And that is, again, I've been able to expand on my support system massively. Um, meeting other people with ocular melanoma has been incredible. I've met like the most amazing people. Um, and we have a group 
uh, at my hospital called Secondary Sisters, which is all women that have stage four cancer. And again, an amazing group of women that I wouldn't have met if I if I wasn't in this situation. Um, but I, I, I have seen the biggest kindness of strangers on my cancer journey that I, I never would have been able to experience otherwise. I mean, with fundraising, there was people from all over the world, different financial situations, religions, different beliefs, all coming together to support me. And I mean, that that's incredible to witness. That's something that kind of fuels me all the time when you're having those low days. And I'd, I'd never even seen anything remotely like that before, been able to be on the receiving end of it. So that is just, yeah, amazing. And I'm very lucky to have been able to experience that. So definitely stands out to me. Yeah. So what are a few of the ways you've had to learn to advocate for yourself during this diagnosis? Um, just to, you know, have have a voice in what's happening to you uh, Obviously, I mean, we're here, you're advocating for yourself in some way here on social media, just in being part of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are some of the other ways that you've been able to learn just to, to speak up for what you need, what you want, uh, be it with people or with your doctors? Uh, I struggled with this quite a bit in the beginning. I'm quite a shy person and uh, not great with confrontation, but I learned quite quickly that this was something I was going to have to do my own research on. Uh, you know, it, it's a rare cancer. You sometimes have to tell your doctor what you've seen or direct them to trials or whatnot. And it's just learning, learning as you go along that you have to explain what you're concerned about. I mean, in I remember in the beginning, um, one of my nurses was focused on removal of the eye, but the doctor told me that the treatment that I have will not be any more significantly riskier than if I removed my eye at the time so Mm. I had to push back and say no I will I want this treatment before we go to removal of the eye whereas previously I would have probably just gone okay if that if that's what you think is best Uh, and the only reason I understood that is because my doctor said it I had to look into it I spoke to other people with ocular melanoma Uh, but you really really do have to be your own advocate which is very difficult but Every doctor's appointment, you have to make sure your head is screwed on with this illness, I feel, unfortunately. It's one of the burdens of a rare one. Yeah, that's so true. Um, it's quite quite the visual there that your head is screwed on properly. Like, and But, I mean, going into these appointments prepared can be, uh, really, it can be life-changing in some ways because you have the opportunity to put things in front of your doctor that maybe they didn't consider before. And I, I appreciate, like hearing from patients who have that dialogue or who are willing to get out of their comfort zone and have that dialogue with their doctor, because I think it challenges our doctors to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And if thinking inside the box did anything for anyone, like we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, thinking outside the box can make such a big difference. And it also, especially I think as maybe just as younger patients, I think it helps it definitely helps me um, to have that dialogue and to feel like I'm part of the decision-making process. Uh, even if it's just to gather information and really just talk back and forth about certain things that can make such a big difference in just how I feel going into whatever I decide to do. Right. Definitely. Um, I feel like sometimes as a young woman as well, you have to fight to be taken seriously a little bit. I, I mm. remember when I first was having um, photodynamic therapy 
and the consultant that performed it was telling me that um, you should have very minimal side effects and the next day it looked like I had been punched in the eye my eye was so swollen oh and so sore uh, for a good couple of days very very sore and the next time I went to see him I explained you know it was very painful I had to go to emergency and get codeine my eye was very sore and he wouldn't he he seemed like he didn't believe me he's like well it shouldn't be patients haven't reported that before so the next time I came into him I came with a photo to say you know this is something that some people may experience this is something I've experienced so maybe this is something you should warn people of make sure they have correct pain medicine in um, prior to mm. this because it happens it does happen because this you know there's there's not these treatments are all relatively new the research is relatively new and and people are learning as they go along and that's fine but believe a patient when they tell you it was painful you shouldn't have to bring in a photo but you do you have to advocate yeah no that's that's such a powerful thing and and it kind of brings up one of the points too that not only in being a young woman but really just being a patient facing a doctor in general there can be a, a level of what um, some patients and nurses refer to as white coat syndrome where you almost um, kind of bel not belittle yourself it's it's that you just kind of you tone down what you think as the patient because your doctor is the doctor and and they they know best because they're your doctor and and it can be kind of one of the downfalls almost um, it's not a terrible thing for a doctor to be confident. Like we want doctors who are confident in what they do and in how they treat patients. But when that confidence comes at the cost of the patient, maybe um, kind of talking down to themselves and telling themselves, oh, well, what I'm experiencing must just not be, it just must not be the right thing. Like it, it must be unrelated because my doctor told me I shouldn't be having these side effects. Like it just is, it's just one of those things, like you said, that a patient should be believed. Mm -hmm. Whether or not the doctor thinks those are the side effects they should be having, is irrelevant if a patient is saying they're experiencing something it, it is real um yeah and to treat definitely. it as such so uh i admire that you that you approached that in in such a way and, and that you brought in some proof to be like look this <laughs> this happened definitely yeah it's like look i've got the evidence here <laughs> yeah exactly um so if you were to talk to someone who and i want to cover two parts of this i, I would i would say uh, what would you tell someone who's brand new to this diagnosis, they've never come across ocular melanoma before, and um, then kind of on the, not the flip side, but just in addition to that, is there anything you would add for someone who is now experiencing a new metastatic diagnosis? Um, the main thing for people who are newly diagnosed is to remember that although you will meet people that have the same cancer, how you respond to it is incredibly unique. So I think try not to compare your journey or your treatment to other people make sure you do your research make sure you get an oncologist that you trust and and take it from there because I think I made the mistake in the beginning of I would compare myself to others or I would get so much anxiety when I was seeing people pass at a particular time who may be on the same treatment as me um, and that can control you so try to remember that your journey is going to be a unique one you will respond to treatments in in your own way uh, and, and don't compare too much, but do look for that support system and do educate yourself. When it comes to a diagnosis of uh, you know, recognizing that it's now become stage four, I think that is just something you're never going to be prepared for. 
but it is something that will become your new normal even though it doesn't seem like that's going to be possible it will and you you will be able to enjoy your life the mundane things in life that will be thing something that you can put to the back of your mind every now and then it will come up and it will become unbearable but for the most part it will be in the back of your mind it just feels really loud at the beginning but it'll quieten down <laughs> that's such a good uh, a good way to explain um just how how much noise this diagnosis can make at the beginning in your brain and that like you said it quiets um so as you've navigated this stage four diagnosis, um, I know your, your article on BBC, I think it was titled like something around living with a terminal, like a terminal cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we briefly talked about before we went live was just this idea of just shedding light and some normalcy on the topic of you know, facing, facing the, the fact that your mortality could very well come to an end based on this, you know, because of this diagnosis. Um, so what are some of the things that have helped you in facing, facing that fear really? Because I think a lot of us fear even talking about our mortality. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I I was the same. It's only natural to not want to talk about that. It's not a comfortable topic. Um, but then when I started looking into it more, looked into palliative, looked into hospice care, it actually made me feel better to understand what was going to be happening at the time where I do eventually pass. Because when you don't know, your mind can build all sorts of conclusions. Uh, but now I know, you know, I've got a great hospice. Hopefully, I, I will be able to have a place there. But again, this is another thing that needs more funding. And that's exactly what the project in the article is trying to do, is get more funding so we can have the option of hospice if we, if we want it. Um, amongst many other things it's trying to do but it's something for me where if I get it organized and I get it planned I don't have to worry about it so much anymore it's an uncontrollable Mm. thing but you can have little bits of control in it you can control to the best of your ability where it's going to be and you know try and calm yourself a little bit by understanding what is going to happen and the you, you know in a in a weird way your family can be relieved by that too because we all think they don't want to talk about it and a lot of a lot of people don't but they do have some kind of comfort knowing that that isn't something they'll have to organize or deal with alone as well so there's many benefits I think to that's, it that's that's such a powerful thing to talk about too and and I loved what you said about how like when you started exploring those options more right with hospice with palliative care that it stopped feeling quite as maybe as daunting and as scary because you were putting some some tangibility to what you were facing. It was no longer this unknown thing that your brain was building stories around. It was something that you had some tangible explanations. You had maybe some representations. I'm, I'm going to assume you probably got to see some facilities and um, just see the kind of support that you could have and talk to people who really could break it down and break down kind of the process. Um, when you were when you were talking. Uh, and have talked about uh, about hospice and palliative care with various different professionals and and your family. Um, have you found that the discomfort of this topic has gotten easier with time? Yes, I think this is something that definitely does have time uh, attached to it, but that is unfortunate because, as we all know, we don't always have time. Uh, I'm very lucky that you know I'm still here and by the time my family have started coming to terms and and talking about it and looking into it I'm still healthy enough to be receptive to that Uh, 
But, you know, one of the biggest things is really having realistic expectations of people and not thinking about what is only best for you, but what is best for the people around you. Some people might prefer that you have it planned and when the time comes, they're introduced to the plan then. They don't always need to be involved in the planning. So you just have to adapt with with family, friends, loved ones. Uh, but it's definitely not something you walk in initially, you know, all guns blazing, looking for, looking to, to plan your death. It, it takes a while to get comfortable with that. So of course, everyone around you can take some time too. Yeah, and like you said, it's such a process and and I think that uh, it was Suzanne, I mentioned Suzanne O'Brien, the um, the palliative care and hospice care nurse who did an interview with us a couple of months ago. And she just talked about it's such an empowering thing for the patient, um, but it also ends up being such an empowering thing for the family to have, um, just to have a better grasp on the process and also to have a better grasp on the resources available to them to support you know, both you and them, like your family, your partner, whoever's involved in your care, like it's, it's such an empowering thing to have that knowledge as opposed to, uh, and, and to be able to build the, the support for it mm-hmm. to like be available to you when you need it. Um, cause I'm going to assume that, you know, the kind of, the kind of palliative care that you might pursue now is going to look very different than what it might look like you know, a year from now or two years from now, or whenever, whenever something shifts and changes in your current medical status, Mm -hmm. um, and having those things in place so that they're already prepared. Like you said, it it can offer that layer of reassurance, both to you and your brain, but also for your family so that they don't have to grasp at straws to try to figure out, well, what are we supposed to do next? Um, it's already largely been, you know, dictated on some level. And like you said, like there's going to be nuances and there's going to be pieces that, that you can't really decide ahead of time. But as much as is possible, those little bits of control, I like how you described that, just those little bits of control that you can, you can take hold of and, uh, and use that. Yeah, definitely. And, and you can also find ways when you explore this and you look into what is available to you, you can find ways to make your life easier to live, not, not just planning the death aspect, but make life easier. Like my, my local hospice um, are now going to start helping me with physio because I've started getting a lot weaker. They can help with talking therapies and all sorts of things. It's not, not just a place you go at the end. They can help you live the, the best version of yourself now too so when you explore it lots of doors open for you I think that's such an important thing so thank you thank you for shedding light on this topic and um, sharing the journey of what it's looked like for you to open those doors and just open those conversations so that it was no longer this unknown thing it became much more known mm-hmm. um, so let's uh, as we're coming to a close um, I just wanted to ask you is there maybe a defining belief that you've adopted in this in this whole journey the last few years um and and it's kind of crazy i'm sure to think that it's only been you know less than four years probably since your initial diagnosis um but in these last four years any any kind of defining belief you a mantra defining belief uh really just any any kind of mindset that has helped you the most no not not more than trying to focus on what is currently happening and I feel like this is something that I I never used to do prior to diagnosis I was always thinking either my mind was left in the past or I was focused on what I was going to do in the future how I was going to get where I want to be uh, but now 
you know, the past is, is a ghost because you think about it too much and you start wondering, you know, should I have done this differently? Should I have done that? And the future is completely unknown when you've got stage four. So you have to just stay where you are, even if it's an uncomfortable place to stay. It's not always the best place to be. You can feel really poorly, but you just have to take each day as it comes. You'll get overwhelmed if not. I would anyway. <laughs> I'd get very overwhelmed if not. So that that that's that for me is a constant reminder to myself that just look at where you are now and just focus on that. Everything else will come. Well, I love that, Megan. And I so appreciate you taking the time out of your evening to share these little insights with us and to share with the rest of the community um, just some of the ups, the downs, the, the real and the raw. Um, I really feel like you've done a, an excellent job of conveying and communicating what was on your heart um, and and what is most meaningful to you. And I hope that those listening can take something away from this episode and share it with a friend. Thank you. Um, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up as you guys are listening. If you want to listen to this recording, um, you can find it here on the Facebook page as well as our YouTube channel. And it'll be up on the I Believe podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks, um, which you can find on most listening channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, Podbean. There's like a host of, I'm sure, more podcast episode areas that you can listen. Uh, and the final note that I would say as we say goodbye uh, would just be that if you're willing to donate or contribute to the podcast, please head to acureinsight.org slash donate. And we would absolutely love and appreciate your continued support. And um, we're grateful again for our sponsorships that make this possible. So uh, Megan, is there anything else that you want to add to conclude? No, just thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been really good to talk to you. So I appreciate you giving, giving me a voice today. Yeah, no, I love it. And you've had such a powerful voice. So thank you for using your voice. You. Um, we will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.